You're listening to 340B Unscripted. Hey, everyone. Welcome to 340B Unscripted. I'm one of your hosts, Greg Wilson, here with my other co-host, Rob Nahoopi. Hey, Hoopy, how's it going? I'm doing great. How are you doing, Greg? I'm doing good. I think this is our, our fourth episode, so we've uh, we finally gotten this thing off the ground. Absolutely, absolutely. Looking forward to this one. I think this is going to be a fun one. Yeah, yeah. Another special guest this week. You want to do the honors of introducing our uh, our esteemed guest today? Our esteemed guest, yes, Matt Parker, uh, pharmacist by training. Um, actually, I, I met Matt quite a few uh, years ago. Um, Matt was the, um, uh, see, Matt, what, you're the manager over the Consolidated Pharmacy Services over at Prisma, um, previously Greenville um, Health System. And uh, Matt did this, uh, when I met him, he was running the Central Distribution Center, their Consolidated Service Center, and, and doing fantastic work with cost savings. He had responsibility over the 340B program. Uh, so Matt just did some fantastic stuff there, but probably more important, um, Matt came, I had an opportunity to come over uh, and, and start working with us um, over on our optimization team since he had done so much good work in, in helping identify savings um, at Prisma that um, he quickly became one of our directors of optimization and now is our VP of optimization and growth strategies and, and brings us a ton of wealth of knowledge and experience um, and really common, good, deme- solid demeanor for our team. Um, and, you know, almost most importantly, Matt is also the 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 brains behind our podcast. Uh, those of you that don't know, uh, Matt has some experience with podcasting and actually does a lot of our editing and um, cutting. And I want to just apologize to our podcast community. I listened to the last podcast and my audio was atrocious. It was horrible. I had switched computers. Um, I had switched to a Dell um, away from a Microsoft uh, one, and apparently the drivers didn't work as well. So I just want to apologize to everybody. I hope I hope I sound better now. I'm on my old Surface Pro recording, um, and I just just want to apologize for that. And that was not Matt's fault. That's that's my main point there. That was not Matt's fault. That was my fault um, and my computer's fault. So I take responsibility for the poor audio, and we hope to not have that happen again. So just want to put that out there. But excited to have Matt on since he's been behind the scenes, and now we get him on the front side, because I think this topic will be great. And, and Matt's uh, got a lot of good information to share. Yeah, I think early on when we decided we wanted to kind of move down the road of doing a podcast, you know, Matt, Matt jumped in and said, I'm, I'm happy to help. I, I'd prefer to be on the on the behind the scenes side of things, help with production, help with uh, engineering the sound and all of that. But I don't want to be in front of the microphone. And here, I think we've been able to uh, trick him into uh, actually being part of the uh, podcast recording. So again, looking forward to having Matt here. We're going to take a quick break. But when we get back, Rob, myself and Matt are going to jump into Inflation Reduction Act. That's the topic of the podcast this week. So stay tuned for, for that in a few moments. The 340B Unscripted Podcast is brought to you by SpendBend Pharmacy. Do you wish you had another 340B expert on your team to help you manage your 340B program, but there's no time or budget available to hire an FTE? The SpendBend Pharmacy 340B Staff Augmentation Solution provides you with an industry expert to help manage your 340B compliance tasks. Visit spendbend.com and follow the pharmacy links to learn how you can maximize your 340B efforts. All right, everyone, welcome back. Uh, this is Greg here with Rob and Matt Parker. Um, guys, Inflation Reduction Act, big 
landmark legislation recently signed into law by President Biden. Um, where do we want to start? <laughs> That's a great question. Uh, you know, and and as as I did some research in preparation for this podcast, um, I'm starting to see that people are referring it to as the IRA. Um, it feels like we already have that acronym being used, but that that's what I'm seeing online um, is the IRA for the Inflation Reduction Act. I kind of want to start almost um, kind of more on an interesting note uh, as we were talking uh, previously. Uh, I do want to just throw, before we get into the nuts and bolts and the details. Um, do we think the act actually reduces inflation? Not at all. <laughs> <laughs> that's uh, that's been my struggle. As I, you know, nice parts when you you know you you prepare to um, discuss a topic, you do as much research as you can. And I'm reading through it, going, how does this reduce inflation? I mean, it it might reduce some costs for um, consumers potentially, but but not really the total cost of of care because some has just been absorbed by Medicare. Um, I would say though that that there's a component that that may help with inflation, and that that's the um, if manufacturers raise the price of their drug faster than inflation, that could result in a re or would would result in a, a rebate back to Medicare, and so that might be enough of a deterrent. That and the 340B uh, penny pricing inflation penalty as well might be enough of a deterrent that manufacturers don't raise their drug prices as fast, and maybe that helps reduce um, inflation to a certain extent. So. So I guess, um, Matt, um, Greg, I, I won't say it doesn't do anything, but uh, it does appear limited on what it does for inflation reduction, um, but does have a, quite a few other components that we should probably get to. I just wanted yeah. to ask that question up front as, as we, yeah, I mean, that, we, we talk That's about certainly a, a common uh, criticism that we're hearing about the bill here is that it really is not going to have a significant impact on um, inflation. Uh, what it's certainly going to have an impact on is, is drug pricing. And I think that's what we really wanted to talk about today. <laughs> Lots of healthcare elements in the act. So if we want to summarize just the, the big kind of tenants to the, the section of the Inflation Reduction Act related to healthcare, we've got Medicare price negotiation, which we're going to talk about in depth today. We've got the inflation rebates um, also impacting spend on Part B drugs. We've got some Affordable Care Act premium tax credits, Part D benefit changes. Um, so lots of elements impacting healthcare. Let's just start with Medicare price negotiation. I think, Rob, I've heard you explain your understanding of the timeline and the details around the Medicare price negotiation process. Do you want to summarize for everybody what, what you think that looks like over the next couple of years? Yeah, I, I mean that's that's the biggest thing. You know, when we first started seeing um, kind of the, the the beginnings of of what this could look like, uh, it was going to start earlier in 2025. But the one important date to remember is the actual Medicare price negotiation doesn't actually kick in until 2026. Um, and in 2026, we're talking about only 10 drugs and only Medicare Part D. Um, and then in 2027, it goes up to 15 drugs. And this is in addition, right? It's not the same 10 or fit, right? So that, that means that you have 25 drugs it's potentially cumulative. now, yeah. right? It's, it's, it's yeah, additive or cumulative. And so you have 15 in, in 2027, also Medicare Part D. So as a reminder, Medicare Part D is only retail or in our case, you know, it could impact contract pharmacy for, as well, but that's really what we're talking about in 2026 and 2027 is Medicare Part D drugs. When we get into 2028, that's where it shifts a little. We're 2020 still only 15 drugs, so we're ramping up to the 20 drugs a year that Medicare wants to get to. But 2028 is just 15 drugs, but that's the first year that they introduce Medicare Part B. So from you know our, our 
covered entity base. Now we're getting into hospital or, or clinic infusions, but more than likely we're talking about infusion-related drugs. Um, and since we've had the first 25 be primarily on the retail side, I, I imagine in 2028 when those 15 kick in, a large percentage of those are going to be Medicare Part B or um, physician-administered drugs or provider-administered drugs. Now, um, one other date that's important, so I'm not going to, not, not talking about all the discounts and things that Medicare Part D is going to do, but the other th important one is this inflation um, kind of uh, rebate process. This is where if the manufacturer raises their drug price faster than the rate of inflation, and, and there's different inflation metrics, metrics, the one that they're going with is the consumer price index urban. So that's the common one when, whenever you hear the news talking about, hey, um, their, their inflation is 6% or 7%. They're talking about CPIU or, or consumer price index urban. Um, and so in 2023, that actually kicks in as, um, as, as a, a risk to manufacturers, and it's going to be based on 2021 data. And what's interesting about that is it's 2022. So manufacturers are going to be impacted on a on this penalty potentially in 2023 based on what occurred in 2021, at least that's the way I read it. I'm not sure if, what your guys' thoughts are on that. Um, I'll just pause there before I get into some of the how the pricing works. Yeah, Rob, I think that's going to be an interesting point there. And I stumbled across some data that shows from 2019 to 2020 that about half of the drugs uh, that are billed by Medicare actually had an inflation rate that was greater than the inflation rate at that time, which was 1%. And obviously, uh, in recent months, we've seen that inflation rate uh, go up significantly from there. But the thought is that there's going to be a lot of manufacturers that are potentially caught in that penalty um, because of that 2021 timeframe that's going to be um, in there and being calculated. So it'll be interesting to see how that plays out and what type of pushback we see from the manufacturers. But um, it's definitely going to have a, an impact going forward. And that's that, that that all takes place 2023. So we're talking a year from now. Correct. Yeah. Six months, really. I mean, not, it, was yeah. August, it was August with four months. Yeah. So that that inflation penalty is going to kick in. And, you know, as as covered entities um, think about, you know, what does this mean for the 340B program? That inflation component um, is this is how I think it plays out. Right. So we know that the 340B program really has an inflation penalty and that's the penny pricing. Um, if you remember how the ceiling price is calculated, it's the average manufacturer price minus the unit rebate amount. And in the calculation of the unit rebate amount, there's two parts to that. One is just the the rebate calculation based on the type of product. So it's going to be a percentage of AMP. Um, so it's kind of AMP is double dipping in this calculation. And that's part of it. That's where we get to the ceiling price, right? 23.1% of AMP for a single source or multi-source innovator drug. And then it kind of goes down from there, depending on what it is. They have an additive um unit rebate amount, which is a factor based on inflation, then the price of the drug being greater than the consumer price index urban, right? So it's this additive rebate amount. When that rebate, that URA, that unit rebate amount, in a combination of just that calculated um, unit rebate plus the additive rebate exceeds AMP, it goes to zero. And that's when a drug is sold for a penny in the 340B program. And and so my concern is, and I think a lot of cover entities have this concern, is manufacturers have kind of known that. So, they, you know, hey, if we raise the price of our drug, we're going to get stuck in the penny pricing penalty for 340B. But when Medicare adds theirs or not pretty much has added theirs, how many manufacturers are now not going to raise their price 
pass inflation because they don't want to get hit by both the rebate to Medicare and the penny pricing penalty, because now that becomes uh, fiscally um, dangerous for them. And and so I wonder if we're going to see a significant decrease in penny price drugs moving forward or new drugs hitting penny pricing for that. So that could erode some 340B savings in the future if less manufacturers are doing it. Um, Agree, disagree with that? Yeah, Rob, I agree wholeheartedly that that's most likely what we'll see happen um, is that, I mean, it's a good good thing the, to be put forth in, in the provision of the bill uh, to try and, and decrease those increases. Um, but uh, I do think that's going to end up limiting the value of the 340B program. I think we heard that statement said multiple times at Coalition, which for all of us that work in 340B kind of makes you shiver a little bit to hear that. Um, but I definitely think there's going to be, be an impact to that value with less increases, uh, which will result in ultimately less savings from those penny pricing. Yeah, so I think what we're, we're saying, I think we're all in agreement. What we'll probably see out of this is, is an increase in the average 340B ceiling price for, for drugs across the board. Absolutely. Agreed. I, I, I don't see how we, we don't. So, oh, go ahead, go Greg. No, so, so so now we're but what we're talking about is with this this Medicare negotiated price. This is another price point for for providers and pharmacies to buy on. So we've got you know for for most of our covered entities that we're working with that are subject to GPO prohibition, we've got the 340B price, the GPO price, the WAC price, and now we've got the Medicare negotiated price. Matt, what are your thoughts on what that means in terms of operations? How you navigate? accessing those those four different price points moving forward. Yeah. So first off, I mean, it just sounds like an operational nightmare um, when, you, when you hear the fact that there's another price point that's going to be out there. I think the big telling thing, though, as I read the, the reg here, is that the IRA or the Inflation Reduction Act actually is silent and it doesn't dictate how manufacturers will provide the pharmacy pricing uh, to the, the pharmacies and the providers. And so we don't know at this moment how that's going to play out. But I want us to, to talk about a couple of things that could happen. So obviously, for those of you who are on the line and, and listening who understand uh, mixed-use setting, you're used to splitting um, in, in multiple accounts. Well, it could be that now there is this MFP account uh, for maximum fair price. Uh, that's that government-negotiated price. And then we would have to split four ways just for that Medicare population. Um, so that's one way that this could be addressed. Another way is through uh, virtual uh, or physical inventories is separating your inventory out, which obviously I think everyone would vote no for that who's worked in pharmacy operations. And then the third thing, and this is the one that I know Rob uh, will love to hear the most, is there is the potential for a rebate model and uh, for you to acquire the drug at a list price and then have to submit rebates. And uh, there's some couple, a couple players in the market that's made some noise recently. Their name starts with a K uh, that have talked about a rebate model. So I could see that being potential um, in the future for how we maintain this pricing. Matt, Matt, I, Matt I got to pause. We don't say the K word on this podcast. I, I'm sorry. I, I didn't say the whole <laughs> word. I just went with K word uh, because I knew it was a touchy subject, but I, I did want to throw it out there. Um, but one thing else I want you to think about. So I know our listeners probably, you know, work in mixed use locations, but they probably also are in health systems that own retail pharmacies. Think about your retail pharmacy that maybe doesn't serve as a contract pharmacy uh, that's just servicing patients of your health system. Now, right now, they don't have to do any type of splitting. Well, they're going to need access to that yeah. uh, MFP. And how are they going to do that? Again, is that going to put them in a split model where they're splitting between the regular retail business and their Medicare business? Is it, again, the K word, a rebate model uh, that they're having to go through? So 
the operational implications are, are large. And I think over the course of the next few years before really this comes into play, uh, we're going to see um, probably several vendors jockeying for position to understand exactly how this is going to work. Nah, Matt, I, I think you're right. And and even though I'm not going to say it either, if if they end up wanting to go down the rebate model, there are some vendors that have developed some strategies and they may have been for 340B, which which fortunately, and I appreciate all the covered entities and 340B Health um, and everyone who pushed back um, and where that never really got implemented. Um, th- this this could be a scenario where it could be used and, and it might be the most efficient way to do it, unfortunately. Um, yeah, that that's huge. I mean, Another area, just just to bring up, I, I forgot to finish it up, but if just to, is everyone familiar with how the discount's going to occur? Because it is different from how 340B is calculated um, on the discount side on this one. Should we you share that? It, Rob, but I need I I need you to explain it to me one more time. I think. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's just different because because that was one thing I wanted to get out of this was how are they going to do the discount? Like, how does it work? And so it's interesting. It's um, they do have the lower of the following logic. So they have three scenarios and whichever is the lowest cost is what they're going to reimburse, right? So the first one is they're going to take um, for the drugs that qualify. And, and we should mention that they, they've already, there's already drugs that aren't going to qualify. So what's what's potentially going to be looked at? So first we've got Medicare Part D and then eventually Medicare Part B. So the first thing is if it's an orphan, it's excluded. So that's interesting because we already uh, kind of deal with orphans. The other one is if it's a um, small molecule drug um, and it's only been on the market for nine years or less, then it's not included. So it has to be on the market for at least nine years And if it's a small molecule. If it's a biologic, then they get 13 years on the market. But what's interesting is, because if you think about patent expiration, there's a second component to that. And that's if there's generic competition or biosimilars, it's also excluded. So that means if it's small molecule, it has to have no generic competition and be at least nine years on market or have been approved. Um, biologics have to be 13 years and can't have biosimilars on the market. Otherwise, they're excluded. So what they're actually going to look at is a small number of drugs. So barring that the drugs enter that process, the next step is to calculate, well, what is that MFP going to be? What is that Medicare fair price or that reduction price? And and the way they're going to do that is they're going to look at starting with 2021 pricing. They're going to look at the non-federal AMP. So still that same that same Average manufacturer price that we're seeing in 340B, they're going to use the non-federal AMP, so taking out the federal payers or the federal buyers. They're going to look at all the drugs sold from manufacturers to wholesalers. That Look at that average price starting in 2021, add in inflation, and that's going to be one potential MFP. Oh, okay, that the base price of the MFP before they take the discount. Then they're going to do, and then starting in 2027 moving forward, they're just going to look at the prior year's non-federal AMP as well. So the question is, is the 2021 inflated number or the the previous year starting in 2027 and on um, going to be lower? Whichever is lower is the one they're going to use. But they have a third catch-all, and that's if prior year's Medicare Part B or Medicare Part D, so depending on where the drug falls, payment for the drug is lower, then they'll use that instead. So one of those three prices will go into the, the base price calculation. Then from there, the MFP will say if it's a short monopoly drug, so less than 12 years since approval. Okay, so this this doesn't even apply to biologics because it can't be. Um, it's only a 25% discount off that price I just mentioned, whichever three is lower. If it's a drug that's been um, 12 to 15 years since approval, so now we'll start getting into some biologics past that 13-year mark, it's a 35% discount. 
And if a drugs had a long monopoly, they're calling it a monopoly. I was trying to avoid that term, but a long monopoly. So greater than 16 years since approval, um, either small molecule or biological, it's a 60% discount off one of those three prices wow. I mentioned. So, so could it gets significant. So if you're a drug that's been around for more than 16 years, doesn't have generic or biosimilar, not an orphan, you're going to get a 60% reduction off your non-federal AMP or your Medicare Part B, Part D payment. Um, so that's that's how the that's the price that we're talking about. And that becomes important because that's a pretty good discount. That's going to be start getting close to 340B. So mm-hmm. the other area that I think covered entities have to think about total savings and budgeting when this kicks in in 2026 is how does it affect our savings? Because whether it's retail, those first couple of years, or your administered drugs, that means what Medicare is paying is going to be this amount. So it's going to eff- effectively reduce your net savings because your the, the revenue coming in is going to be less because in theory, the hospital or the contract pharmacy or your own pharmacy can buy it at that Medicare price. You still may buy it at the 340B price. And there are some exceptions in the, in the actual, if you actually read the legislation, there are exceptions for 340B where the manufacturer doesn't have to provide both prices. But if 340B is lower, then you take that price. And so that's what you end up with is a little bit of net savings from the difference between 340B and the MFP price. So I'll pause because I know that was a lot. Uh, guys, anything that I kind of stumbled through or, or would be worth clarifying? I don't, I don't think stumbled through, but that last piece, Rob, is really important to talk about is, is that decrease in savings. So all of us are familiar with the reimbursement model right now, ASP plus 6% or you know, minus 23.5%. Obviously, that's changing with the, the court case. Um, but what you're, you're saying is that reimbursement going forward is going to be MFP plus 6%. And because that MFP is lower, then the spread between your 340B price and what you're reimbursed is going to be shrunk. Um, and so the actual, not only net drug savings, but also uh, just the total savings uh, to the program is going to be uh, decreased. And so that's going to have a direct impact to the budgets of uh, health systems and, and covered entities across the country. Um, because that's going to be a real impact. And then it'll happen on the retail side as well. Um, so instead of being reimbursed at um, a, like a usual customary plus a dispensing uh, fee, it'll be that uh, the MFP plus a dispensing fee. Um, and then again, that's going to shrink those margins. So I see margins shrinking, um, you know, going forward. And, and that's obviously going to be an impact. Uh, it'll be hopefully good overall that we'll see less spending. But in terms of the dollars coming into health systems and pharmacies, there will be less. Yeah, it's almost analogous to what we've seen with um, various state Medicaid payers who've transitioned to requiring AAC. Assuming that you know, if you're you're bill, you're you're going to be billing at your your best price, either the 340B price or the MFP. That's what you're getting paid for by by Medicare. So your your margins essentially uh, neutralized um, at that point. And and we know that covered entities have experienced that already with. Medicaid beneficiaries and the fact that many state Medicaid payers are now paying based on acquisition costs. And, and, you know, Matt, um, you made a good point, uh, right, for when we get to the Medicare Part B section um, and and it's the the ASP plus 6 percent and it really becomes MFP plus 6 percent, 6 percent of less is less. Um, That's That's the key. Right. I always tell people it's still 6%, but it's a smaller number at the 6% of so that overall savings goes down. Um, and especially when you think about the fact that, you know, what it was is ASP plus 6% and that 340B price wasn't calculating it. This delta was much larger, which was really good for, for hospitals and covered entities. Um, and, and so it's just going to be a significant reduction in reimbursement. And it's going gonna, it's gonna to be tough. 
I'm glad that it's a this kind of they've done this 10 drugs and 15 drugs and starting with the retail side first to really get um, allow health systems and hospitals and um, to get really get not get comfortable, but to understand these financial impacts so they can start budging for it instead of just kind of having some massive um, potential um, hit in, in one year to start yeah. with. So the gradual kind of build up, I, I think, is going to be helpful. Yeah, I, uh, I think. No, go ahead, Matt. Sorry, I was just you know kind of wondering like what will be the future of of negotiation and contracting on the the health system side or hospital side, um, you know because today we can negotiate prices and uh, get a, a individual price that's a sub three forty B price or we can get a sub if we're talking non three forty B that's a significantly below ASP and so that delta is increased. Is there going to be the potential to have you know based off your volume to work with the manufacturer get a sub MFP? Uh, right. I, I don't know. Um, it'll be interesting to see how that plays out. But again, I see those margins that we typically are relying on shrinking um, as we go forward into this, this bill. Uh, Greg, I don't know what your thoughts are on that, but I, I, honestly, Matt, I didn't even think about that. But that's huge, right? If you think about manufacturers wanting to place themselves, you know, on the formulary through the um, a P&T process. Well, this, at least for the Medicare population, which it can be significant percentage of your patients, especially when you think about, you know, um, aging populations that get certain surgeries or different care that does change the market dynamics of, of this kind of, uh, P and T negotiations and class reviews. Um, and so if, if they can't negotiate sub, um, MFP, uh, you know, are they gonna have to get bigger discounts in the non MFP, non 340B space so that they can kind of compete more um that'll be interesting to see how that plays out greg i, I don't know you spent a lot of time on pnt any any thoughts how that's going to impact that yeah i think that's a, a really interesting scenario that matt you're bringing up is that maybe this is going to cascade into you know uh health systems and, and insurers formulary access strategies and whether or not there's an opportunity to negotiate those sub uh mfps really adds another level of consideration to the, the the really dynamic environment of of drug selection. So, yeah. and then play that forward and look at a service line like oncology, right? And I'd say most oncology centers across the country, when you look at your pair mix, you're looking at a largely Medicare population, yeah. um, Medicare Part B uh, for the, these products. And so, if you're dealing with an MPF and shrinking margins. Um, those service lines are already fairly tight. Um, and what is that going to do based off of your patient mix or your, your payer mix uh, to making that service line profitable altogether? Great thought. All right. So we, we've covered a lot about what's in the bill. What about things that are not in, a, in the bill? Elements of either drug pricing or healthcare that were omitted from the bill that, that give us some pause for consideration. Matt, I know you had thought about a few of these things. Yeah, so I, I wrote down just a couple of things that the bill doesn't address. And first off is the bill doesn't address uh, gene therapies. Um, and even though they're biologics, right, that, that startup cost for gene therapy where we're seeing uh, some gene therapies come out with price tags of, you know, a million or $2 million per dose or per treatment because these are, quote unquote, cured up therapies. Um, and so with more of our market and more of our uh, healthcare industry going in that direction, um, what will be the ultimate impact uh, to this to this bill to cost of spending overall when you've got such large you know expense and those gene therapies? So it doesn't address those, um, and so I'm I'm interested to see how that's going to impact. 
is it going to shift more development and R&D dollars toward uh, gene therapies? And, and obviously, uh, biologics, we'll talk about that probably in just a minute, how they have a longer window there. And then it doesn't address uh, value-based care. I think all of us would say we really want to get to a point where we're in a value-based care model where things are reimbursed and paid for that truly being value to, to patients. And this doesn't do that. Um, and so I'd love to see something come out and say, hey, let's address the Me Too drugs. Um, in my mind, this bill would just probably create more Me Too drugs, right? Because mm-hmm. if you've got a drug that's nearing its uh, its exclusivity window and getting ready to go into negotiation, well, that's a fine time to come out with a different isomer mm-hmm. and then market that or a different delivery system, right? We've seen that happen before where you were an injectable product uh, and on the market right before you lost your exclusivity, you flipped your, de- your uh, delivery system into a device and it became an on-body product. Um, and so I can see that happening over and over. And so it doesn't really address value-based care and that we're not just going to pay more for something because it's new if it's not providing new benefit and, and new value to the system. Yeah, there's, you know, there's, you know, and you look at the, uh, the, the IRA, there's, you know, a few provisions in there to try to deter manufacturers from, from gaming the system. So for example, the biosimilar generic um, exemption, you know, there's a, a provision in the law that prevents manufacturers from getting FDA approval for uh, a generic or a biosimilar, but not bringing it to mar- or market, not launching that product. So, you know, it looks like they've drafted some elements in the law to prevent gaming of the system, but you, you, you got to think that manufacturers are going to look at workarounds right now as far as their, um, their drug development process and their FDA approval process to try to mitigate some of the impact of the, uh, the, the price setting here. Yeah, exactly. And then, I, you know, I'm forecasting that there'll be an impact to innovation. I'm interested to know, though, what um, Rob and Greg, what you guys think. You know that that is right for for as long as I've been in healthcare. Gosh, I don't I want to I don't want to say how long that was um, or is, but um, even going back to um, my residency uh, years and, and after pharmacy school, we've always talked about that. You know what what is the impact to to um, reducing pricing of drugs here in the U.S. Because for years or decades, um, pharma's been kind of touting the fact that hey, the reason that drugs are more expensive in the U.S is because the U.S. is paying for innovation. We're paying for the research and the studies and, and all of the innovative products. So we're funding it in some way, shape, or form, which I guess makes us feel good that we're paying significantly more than other countries. Um, and and as when even, even years ago when I did my residency on this, we, we had a good conversation. We did a little book club thing, and we talked about the fact that, but are manufacturers really the innovators anymore? That was true at one point in time. But in today's age, you know, especially with the NIH funding and, and universities uh, doing more funding as well um, with, with uh, benefactors um, wanting to fund research, especially in, in certain disease states, oncology being huge, I don't believe that manufacturers are the innovators anymore. I think it's our universities and, and our academia that's out there doing the studies, that, that, that first-line studies, the research, the benchtop research, all of this. And when it gets closer to um, – you know, being being ready for uh, uh, you know late stage trials where it can go to market. I think that's where manufacturers step in and buy the technology off the universities, which was funded by NIH grants and again uh, not uh, or um, donated funds. And so I think the risk is low. What's interesting is as part of this, the CBO, the Congressional Budget Office, did review it. Right, the, the Cong- I love the Cong- Congressional Budget Office numbers because they always try and 
um, you know, unbiased, at least they're supposed to be unbiased, uh, determine what the cost is of things. And this is one of the questions they had to answer. And so the results said they believe, so this is the CBO's estimate, is that 15 out of 1,300 drugs or 1% would not come to market over the next 30 years as a result of the drug provisions in the reconciliation legislation. So we're talking about one drug every two years is not going to make it to market yeah. um, because of that. Now, we don't know what the impact of those 15 drugs would be. And, and again, we're talking about averages and, and everything. So we're not even sure if there would be an impact or if it's how legitimate it is. But that's their estimate. So, yeah, I'd love to hear if you guys think that's going to be true. Um, I tend to believe them. I, I think they're probably close to where it's going to be. Yeah, I, I think that's probably close. And I think, Greg, you and I were talking before uh, we started the podcast here that most likely the thing that will happen is we'll see the, the shift from small molecule drugs to large molecule drugs or to biologics, right? Which we've already seen that path. But if you put it out in front of a manufacturer that you have, you know, nine years of exclusivity for small molecule or 13 years or 12 years for um, the biological molecule, obviously, if given the two, you choose the one with, with the higher uh, years of exclusivity. So I think that may be an unintended consequence uh, that we see more uh, biological development. Uh, but again, that was already kind of trending that way, uh, just just as it is currently in the market. Yeah, the, the frequency of that transition, um, I, I agree, probably going to increase. You know, clearly, you know, manufacturers are are not incentivized with this bill to pursue small molecule drug development. So I I agree. I think we'll see a, a shift to even more biologic uh products in the in the healthcare space uh, the the other thing I, I think we'll see you know i mean right pharmaceutical manufacturers i'll just say it aren't dumb um if they know that there's going to be an inflation penalty if they try and raise their drugs you know faster than inflation later on are they going to start off at a higher price if they're truly innovator mm -hmm. products that could be at risk in you know x number of years do they start up at a higher price so they don't hit this inflation penalty? And also that way, when the reductions occur down the road, if they get put into the MFP, the maximum fair price um, calculations, that that they'll still have a decent amount of revenue coming in. So I, I, this, that's part of my thought process is, do we see higher prices for new products as, as a result of this? Yeah, I, I think so. I, I think, like you said, uh, Rob, they're, they're not uh, not smart. And so they, they're able to calculate their margins and know what the return is um, over that period of time. So it's a simple calculation if you, you know that you only have X number of years before that negotiation starts um, to kind of calculate what you need to, to do to bring in uh, the value that you once would have had. And so I can see that increasing pricing. The other thing that I wonder is, you know, do you think there'll be an impact on private payers, right? Because this um, MPF uh, it is strictly to, to Medicare. Uh, right. And so is it possible that some of the, the costs then get shift to private payers um, or to the you know private insurance market um, and seeing higher prices paid on, on that side versus uh, the NPF side? Yeah, Matt, I, I mean, I, I think that's all true. I think that's a great thought process, but I got to pause because you use the double negative And I just want to say that uh, it was a nice <laughs> throughout to uh, our buddy, Rich Boer. Um, uh, who's a big fan of double negative. So I always appreciate a good double negative. All right. Any other thoughts? I'm going through my list of of things that I jotted down from coalition. I think we've hit just about all the big pieces that were brought up in conversation. I think launch price control 
or lack of launch price control is certainly going to be an issue. We're going to see uh, an increase not only in that average 340B ceiling price, but launch prices as a whole are going to go up in, in, in my projection here. Yeah, I agree. And then, Greg, if we could just go back to what we started at the beginning, uh, talking about the inflation reduction side. And of course, I said no, no inflation reduction happening there. But we do have to, to speak to the fact that there are some good things in this bill. Um, particularly on the Part D side. Uh, so, you know, the fact that there's a cap um, for insulin uh, co-sharing at $35. So that means if you're a Part D beneficiary, you won't pay more than $35 a month for your insulin. Um, now, that does mean that Medicare is going to probably pick up the difference there. So that'll be more spending. Vaccines have gone down to a zero copay. There's a max $2,000 out of pocket. Um, and uh, there is uh, the, the reduction of the um, catastrophic coverage or catastrophic payments. Uh, that were being paid by um, Medicare beneficiaries. So there's definitely some good things. One of the, the articles I was reading um, showed the number of Medicare beneficiaries by state and how many fell into the different buckets of either spending greater than uh, 2000 or hitting that catastrophic level. And so it's significant, the number of folks that will be impacted by this and we'll see a decrease um, in their you know, monthly out-of-pocket expense. Um, but when you look at it from a macroeconomic standpoint, you know, what will that do to overall healthcare spending or our, our economy? Um, I think that's where we have to come back and say, yeah, there'll probably be fairly negligible impact here in terms of total overall spending. Yeah, you're right. Though. The, I mean, those are the highlights, I think, from a you know, patient perspective. And those those provisions take they go into effect immediately or, or sooner. You know, so 2023, the uh, copay caps at thirty five bucks a month. You know, the catastrophic um, insurance coverage elimination 2024 and then the donut hole being closed up by 2025. So, you know, there there is going to be some significant benefit to patient populations out there sooner rather than we see these um, uh, price changes impact providers, but agree, not entirely sure how that impacts the overall cost of healthcare as it relates to inflation control. So, Yeah, it, it probably depends if you're somewhat inflation as in what the consumer sees in pricing yeah. versus what the actual cost is to us as taxpayers, as the federal government. Um, I think those are two different things um, in, in, in how we see or, or view inflation. But I do love the fact, I, $35 copay for insulin, Love it. Um, you know, we, we always talk about providing benefit to to patients. And I do think our diabetes population and the cost of insulin and how high it's gotten or how high it's become is kind of a, a negative factor. In fact, at the coalition, and we talked about it on the previous podcast, that was the focus on two of the studies was what what happens when patients can't afford their insulin because their percentage copay is so high. And and they ration insulin. So the fact that it's $35 for all Medicare Part D, I think that's huge. Um, really liking that component. Um, and and I'm, I'm all for that one. Yeah, especially with manufacturers restricting access to 340B pricing to insulin products at the contract pharmacies. You know, what, what it's good, good timing to, to help with controlling patient out-of-pocket expense because I'm sure there are some patients out there struggling to cover the costs of their insulin now that their 340B providers aren't able to get 340B pricing at the, at the retail pharmacies. So. Absolutely. And guys, I just thought about one more impact here. Um, talking about the, the MFP and how that's going to get to pharmacies. Think about Medicare, Medicare Part D specifically and what's going to happen in the early years. Um, I've read a couple people that suggested that the manufacturers may push back by creating more limited distribution meaning that if you want the MFP price, you have to go through their pharmacy network. 
Uh, so imagine, you know, like the limited distribution we have on specialty pharmacies and, and so forth and so on in order to gain that pricing. And so, again, if you're listening to your healthcare leader, or you've got retail pharmacy division that you're over, um, there could be some loss of, uh, of, of business uh, to this if that happens to go that direction in terms of going down these limited uh, pharmacy networks. So um, unfortunately, we don't know whether any of this will actually occur, but it's all things that we just need to keep our eyes on and be looking to see how this is going to play out so that we can adjust accordingly um, because, again, it could have big impacts to our business models. Absolutely. So um, as we think about um, things that we have to add to our vocabulary, um, right? So I think MFP, and I, I don't, I'm not sure even I got it right during this entire podcast, but MFP is maximum fair price. So let's add that to our vernacular. I'm sure we'll be um, hearing that uh, more. Um, Inflation Reduction Act or the IRA is probably going to be added as well. So, so healthcare I guess add a few more acronyms. It sounds like. Yeah, we've got to tune up the glossary in our audit reports now. <laughs> uh, all right, that was, that was a great discussion, Matt. I, I got to tell you, I really appreciate having you on. I think um, you bring a, a world of knowledge and experience, and and I appreciate you. Thank you. Yeah, glad to be here. Thanks for the invite, and uh, hopefully I'll get another one. We'll definitely have to pull you out from behind the scenes and back to back to front front of the curtain. You can't, you, you can't avoid us with this. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, everyone, thanks for listening, and uh, we'll catch you the next time. Take care. Thanks, everyone. Thanks for listening to 340B Unscripted. Subscribe today on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts.